ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. If you're uh, deaf and you need an Auslan interpreter to interpret for you in the jury deliberation room, the common law at the moment says that that's not possible. Hi, Damien Carrick here. That's coming up shortly here on The Law Report. First, the deepening crisis at accounting giant PwC. Nine partners have been directed to go on leave as the Australian Federal Police investigates possible criminal charges against former senior tax partner Peter Collins for the alleged misuse of confidential government information. So, is this a case of one or a few bad apples? Or is there a deeper structural problem? Professor Ian Gow is Director of the Centre for Corporate Governance and Regulation at the University of Melbourne. He's also the co-author of The Big Four, The Curious Past and Perilous Future of the Global Accounting Monopoly. Ian Gow, what exactly is Peter Collins alleged to have done back in 2014? So at that time, Peter was advising government in a couple of different roles. And essentially, I guess you'd call them sort of secret advice, sort of in a confidential role. He was providing advice to the government with regard to changes to legislation covering corporate taxes. And in that role, he'd signed uh, confidentiality agreements uh, with the government. And it turns out that he didn't keep that information confidential, but instead shared it with some of his colleagues at, at PwC who were advising or hoping to advise uh, corporate clients on their tax structures. So he was advising government on how to tighten corporate tax, but then letting his colleagues know who advise these same corporate clients how they might work around what the government was planning to implement. Yeah, so I think it's basically providing some insight as to what the government was proposing to do. I don't think we know all the exact details of what was actually shared, but it was essentially information about what the government was proposing to do. And in some sense, that would give the clients of PwC potentially access to sort of advance insights and sort of an earlier opportunity to, to restructure their business or to take other steps that they might want to take to reduce their taxes going forward. And we're talking here about big tech companies, uh, very much transnational corporations who, who can move their resources around and organise themselves in very complex and, and sometimes opaque ways. Yeah, I mean, tech companies, it's not that they're inherently averse to paying taxes. It's just the nature of their business. It's very, very strong in, in intangible assets, you know, patents and copyrights and so forth. And those are particularly amenable to sort of structuring your business to reduce taxes. So, it's just any business that basically deals a lot in intellectual property and technology firms are obviously sort of the leading case and also at the same time are very profitable. They're sort of a leading candidate for sort of wanting to, but more importantly, having the opportunity to structure their business in a tax favourable way. So what charges might Peter Collins face? Obviously, he signed confidentiality agreements and, you know, breach of those confidentiality agreements, obviously breach of contract. But my guess is when the government is the counterparty, uh, there's probably potential criminal charges associated with it. I don't know the details, but the, the mere fact that the, the matter has been referred to the Australian Federal Police suggests that there is some scope that the government sees for sort of looking at ways to, to charge him criminally. But I, I don't know the specific crime he would be charged under. Is there a suggestion that Peter Collins not only passed on information, but authorities might also investigate whether or not he was creating or designing a loophole that could be jumped through? Or is that taking things way too far? 
They might be taking things way too far. I think the, the, in that regard, it's probably, I mean, no doubt in sharing this information, it seems very plausible that he would have understood that his, his partners would have been interested in information for structuring, providing advice to, to corporate clients. And so it seems very plausible that he would have sort of been aware of that use of that information and that might have potentially motivated uh, the, the sharing of that information. We don't know exactly who was copied on these emails, but it seems very plausible that, you know, Peter Collins is sort of the, the, the source within PwC of this information was one of those people. So sort of knew what was going on with regard to that, that information. And presumably that has uh, legal ramifications in its own right. Ian Gow, the, the, the fallout of the scandal is is ongoing and, and unfolds day by day. Uh, we've had the, the Tax Practitioners Board barring Peter Collins from practice. We've had PwC CEO, Australia CEO Tom Seymour and other senior figures stepping down. And we now have the acting Chief Executive Kristen Stubbins issuing an apology. What do you make of her apology, her statement? Some people have described this letter as sort of too little, too late. Um, And then there's also the concern that there's some caveats to this letter that are also causing concern among some of the people most vocal about uh, this issue. Okay, so in the statement, uh, she said nine unnamed partners have been directed to go on leave. But as we record this interview, we still don't know the names of the other 50 PwC staff who received and possibly acted on the confidential information they received from Peter Collins. There are calls for those names to be made public. Is it credible for PwC to not release their names? So I think in some ways, I think if this if this letter had come out earlier and they say, listen, we've got due process here, we basically want to investigate, we want to understand the roles of these people, because these some of these people may have just got the email tangentially, may not have read it, all those kinds of things. If that had happened earlier, I think there would have been more credibility given to uh, this idea and the idea of some sort of due process in some sense. But I think because this thing has come out so so late, events have got ahead of PwC, and so you've seen, you know, uh, various parties, you know, heads of the political parties, the prime minister, senators, various people saying, listen, we need to know those names. So a sense has almost become sort of a, a litmus test for how committed is PwC to coming clean on this issue. In the statement from Acting Chief Executive Kristen Stubbins, she said uh, PwC has commenced what it calls a process of ring-fencing projects involving the federal government to prevent future conflicts of interest. What do you make of that assurance? I think the problem with that issue is, um, I mean, you know, they signed confidentiality agreements basically not to dis- not to disclose the information that they did disclose. So there's going to be a real credibility issue, uh, I think, there just because um, it sort of goes to the very nature of the, the problem that they've had. The other thing is exactly how these ring fences would work, like exactly what would be the nature of these ring fences. You know, at some level, I think some of these issues really require sort of deeper structural train changes, the kinds that of regulators. Uh, in the UK and the US have called on these firms to make and the firms themselves have even considered seriously, which is basically separating out parts of these businesses so they're not the behemoths that they currently are. These behemoths, as you describe them, are the four giant accounting firms, PwC, EY, KPMG and Deloitte. What work do they do? What is their business model? So the big four... Their roots are as audit firms, accounting firms. So they they started off in the the 19th century, mostly uh, in the UK, but they really took off in the United States in the 20th century. 
and around the world. And a big part, big driver of that was the fact that they essentially had a monopoly on auditing large firms. And auditing is a critical function performed as part of you know the operation of capital markets and the operation of businesses. And that's sort of their, that's their sort of their legacy, their history. But in the 1970s and later, they started moving into diverse businesses such as consulting and provision of tax services. So even tax services is something that's relatively recent, sort of starting in the 1970s was sort of a business they weren't really in in a major way. But then they sort of lobbied to be sort of a provider of tax services to corporations and that business has certainly grown. More recently, a lot of their growth has come from things outside the traditional bread and butter what we would sort of call advisory or consulting services. And these are many faceted, you know, they, they might be working in marketing, advertising, technology, legal, you know, the consulting side of the business is very broad and is by far the fastest growing part of the business for all of the big four firms nowadays. So we're talking here about PwC, EY, KPMG and Deloitte, all originally auditors. What is their structure? Are they partnerships like legal partnerships or are they corporations or are they something in between? Economically, they're structured as partnerships. You know, their exact legal form will vary by jurisdiction. So in contrast to, say, legal partnerships, law firms are quite defined in the kind of work that they do and they have these kind of strong ethical frameworks around being uh, lawyers are officers of the court and they have uh, responsibilities to the court. These firms don't have that same strong, defined ethical frameworks? I think it, um, in some respects they do. So if you think if auditors are you know, the core part of the business, you know, very much a profession like lawyers, in some sense auditors are there not necessarily to represent the interests of the company but to represent the interests of the shareholders and they formally work for the board of directors in terms of sort of ensuring that the financial reporting by management is sort of in accordance with accounting standards. So they, they definitely have that that historical legacy, that sort of probity-based business model that the law firms have. And of course, one can always debate the extent to which that applies to law firms as well. But I think the difference is, you know, the law firms haven't branched out into all kinds of businesses. You know, they haven't branched out into doing technology services and outsourcing and consulting and all these kinds of things. So I think just from a cultural perspective, as the big four firms that don't even call themselves accounting firms anymore, as they're branched out of these other businesses, there's sort of that core part of the business where there is probably a similar ethic operating that you would see in law firms that has become presumably less and less important to the firms over time. So we're focusing this conversation on the current scandal involving PwC, but there have been other very big scandals involving the big four. Can you walk me through just a few of the scandals in recent years? So a lot of the scandals actually relate to the core part of the business. So there's been various what you call audit failures. So a recent example was uh, Wirecard, which was EY's operations, Ernst Young's operations in Germany, where essentially the, uh, the business ended up uh, to some extent, not quite all being there. Um, and uh, the auditors was held partly responsible for that to the extent that, you know, EY has been banned from auditing for a couple of years. But I mean, there's sort of been a string of audit failures. There've been a number in the UK that led to sort of in calls for regulation sort of around 2018 timeframe. And one can go all the way back to sort of 2002 when you had Arthur Anderson, which was back when it was the big five audit firms, uh, Arthur Anderson got into hot water auditing companies like Enron, 
And as part of the, their audit failures there, they basically were criminally un- indicted in the US and that basically drove them out of business. So audit failures is one area of the business, but, but tax has been another area where there's been problems over time. So in 2005, KPMG entered into a sort of deferred prosecution agreement in the US. And part of the rationale for sort of entering into that agreement from the perspective of the US regulators was that they were they didn't want to see KPMG disappear, um, that, you know, it was quite explicitly stated on the part of the regulator, uh, the Attorney General in the US, that listen, we don't want to go from four to three in 2005 if you know KPMG were to say have pled guilty to a criminal charge as effectively Arthur Anson did in 2002. So these tax services have been sort of a, a recurring source of scandal. I mean, the audit side of the business, I think you might say, well, you know, you want them to do a good job of auditing, but, you know, that's sort of the core part of the business. But the tax part of the business is one where it's arguably because it does seem to be a recurring source of scandal and also sort of a, a way in which these firms are potentially sacrificing some of their reputational capital, you know, doing things like we've seen at PwC, is perhaps a part of the business where regulators might be keen to see the, the, that part of the business split off from the audit just so that the risk is mitigated to some extent. So, so Ian Gow, finally, given everything we've been talking about, how should government respond? And I guess in two particular areas. One, how should it regulate these giants? And two, to what extent should it be engaging with the big four? Should it be doing the policy work itself? Yeah, so there's a few questions there. So I think in terms of uh, working with the big four, in terms of regulating them, making sure they're doing uh, a good job, I think there's two angles there. One is sort of continuing to beef up the monitoring of the audit function, and we're seeing efforts in that regard in, on the part of ASIC. You know, there's there's good work that's being done there, but obviously there's always room for improvement. I think the second question is, I mean, in the UK, they talked about this in 2018, 2019. In the US, they've been talking about it more recently. It's just potentially taking structural efforts to uh, reform the big four. So to potentially, you know, separate out the business so that the more probity-driven parts of the business, such as audit and, you know, ensuring that the companies comply with tax laws and so forth, that those are sort of run on a less commercial basis than we, we might see the firms being run, in, run currently. So that, I think, is sort of a, a second angle. Now, with regard to the, the other aspect that I think is particularly important in Australia is this whole idea of sort of outsourcing the public service to the big four. And I think there's additional conflicts that we see there. I mean, aside from whether that's the right way to, to run the public service or to, to the government to get labour and skills that it needs, it does raise these conflicts because these are commercial enterprises. And while they are working for the government, they've got their very large commercial operations serving you know very different parts of the Australian economy. And that in its own right may give rise to conflicts that may be a concern to the government. So is there an argument that government should be doing more of this in-house? Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, if the only supply of these services are these these very commercial global enterprises that have other interests, then that, that is definitely an argument for, you know, looking to, you know, obtain those services in a way that's less riddled with conflict and that may in turn be using public servants to do the work. Professor Ian Gout, thanks for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks, Damien. Thank you very much. The Victorian Law Reform Commission is recommending changes to the law that would enable people who are deaf or blind to serve on juries. The Commission's report has been tabled in the Victorian Parliament. 
Coincidentally, on the same day, a decision of the ACT Supreme Court confirmed that the Territory is the one jurisdiction in Australia that does welcome deaf jurors. Lawyer Emma Cashin was the team leader on the Victorian Law Reform Commission report. Emma Cashin, around Australia, what are the laws which restrict deaf and blind people from serving as jurors? In Victoria, and the legislation is broadly similar around the country, there are two key barriers that prevent deaf, hard of hearing, blind or people with low vision from serving on Victorian juries. The first one is that there's no obligation in the Juries Act on the courts or on the juries commissioner to provide adjustments that would enable people to serve. And without that obligation, they're generally not provided. And when you talk about adjustments, you mean Auslan interpreters or uh, stenographers or that kind of thing? Auslan interpreters, stenographers, it might be taking a guide dog into the courtroom, it um, might be printing out court documents in larger font, hearing loops which send sounds from the courtroom directly into a person's hearing aid, it might be using an electronic magnifier or even technology that would convert written text to speech on an iPad in the jury box or even just little things like assistance getting in and out of the courtroom. Okay, so one legal impediment is the lack of an obligation on the courts to provide those forms of assistance. What's the other big legal impediment? The other big legal impediment is an old common law rule that says you can't have a non-juror in the jury room. And it's known as the 13th person rule because a criminal trial usually has 12 jurors. So if you um, are deaf and you need an Auslan interpreter to interpret for you in the the jury uh, deliberation room. The common law at the moment says that that's not possible. And it's an old rule that was designed to protect the confidentiality of that deliberation process and to encourage frank discussion. It's also recently been upheld in a High Court decision in 2016. So at the moment, what happens is if you're deaf, hard of hearing, blind or with low vision and you need reasonable adjustments to serve, you end up applying to be excused quite early in the um, jury selection process or the jury's commissioner or the court will deem you ineligible to serve. And your report is calling for changes to these two legal impediments. One, you're calling for a change to the law that would require courts to make reasonable, reasonable adjustments, not adjustments everywhere always, but reasonable adjustments where possible, and also kind of a revisiting or a lifting the, the sort of the blanket ban on the 13th uh, person in the jury. Room. Yeah, they're the legal changes we're asking for. In relation to limiting that ban on having a 13th person in the jury room, we're suggesting that there are various safeguards that should accompany that. So the interpreter should provide an oath to the court not to get involved in jury deliberations, to maintain the confidentiality of that process, and also be subject to the same penalties that a, that a juror is if they breach those obligations. And we're also suggesting that the Auslan interpreter or the support person should be um, subject to training for that particular role and it's a different role to what an Auslan interpreter would do in a courtroom. It's behind closed doors. So we are suggesting that the Auslan interpreter sign up to standards of conduct and undergo special training for that particular role. The only jurisdiction in Australia which has adopted these changes so far is the ACT. And there's just been a decision from the Supreme Court in that jurisdiction about how these changes will be implemented Tell me about the decision of Chief Justice uh, McCallum. Yeah, that was an amazing display of synchronicity to have it on the same day that we tabled our report. So the Chief Justice has decided that a deaf juror should be provided with two Auslan interpreters um, for jury service. And this particular person went through the impanelment process with those two Auslan interpreters, but wasn't ultimately selected for the jury trial. But 
all of the practice is underway in the court for this to happen. So it's an important step. We have been keeping an eye, our eyes on the ACT to see if someone had served. So it's a, it's a great thing. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a great step forward, but um, it didn't actually lead to somebody serving on a jury because I understand the, um, the jury couldn't sit on the trial for a reason totally unrelated to their, their, their status as a deaf person. Yes, absolutely. And we can't speculate why that is. Um, jurors uh, get rejected for jury duty for a whole number of reasons. So yeah, in this particular case, but they did go through the impanelment, the jury selection process with their two Auslan interpreters. So, so that's great. And what's really great, what's really interesting from this decision is that the Chief Justice confirms that, okay, this is going to cost our court about $10,000, but that won't be disproportionate or an undue burden on the court's resources. We're taking it on. And also the Chief Justice confirms that the presence of an Auslan interpreter in the court and in the jury room will not cause problems. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So, okay, we have the ACT way out there, separate from other Australian jurisdictions. What's the situation in other countries where they have juries? Talk me through what's been happening in the USA. Yeah, so people who are deaf and blind have been serving on uh, juries in the USA for over 30 years. They've been doing it uncontroversially. The right to a fair trial has been maintained. The efficiency of the jury selection process has been working well. And, and it's a regular occurrence. So there are stories from deaf advocacy and blind advocacy organisations online which tell people stories of their service. Um, and both blind and deaf people have served in America. We spoke during the course of our program Project to the juries commissioner who works in Rochester in Monroe County, New York State. Now, Monroe County has a really high proportion of um, deaf people living in that county because it has a technical institute for the deaf. And it's quite a regular occurrence for a, a person to be called up for jury duty and to indeed serve with two American Sign Language interpreters in, in that county. So it happens quite often. And the sky has not fallen in. The sky has not fallen in. Things are just rolling along as they, as they always do. Uh, look, uh, from your report, I, I read about a lady called Dana Ard, who was a blind juror in Idaho in 2021. There was also Tracy Straube in 2015, who served as a juror in an armed robbery case in Detroit. Uh, interpreters took uh, turns, 10 to 15 minutes each, uh, and they stood down in front of the court, uh, and the juror's eyes shifted back and forth between the Auslan interpreter and, and what else was going on in the court, and there seemed to be no problems in terms of uh, the, the, the juror understanding understanding what was going on. No, and there's been a lot of academic research done in Australia on this issue, and um, they've even run a mock trial. So the translatability of um, complex legal concepts into Ausland is, is possible. The legal academic research has demonstrated that. The mock trial, the judge at the end said, well, this ran no differently to any other trial that I've run, with or without deaf jurors and Auslan interpreters. And we know that it's been, it's working in America. There's, there's no concerns in America. It's also um, been happening in Ireland and UK and also in New Zealand. Really interesting. You mentioned that, that Ireland, I think that was a case just from 2020. Patricia Heffernan, a, a deaf person. The judge in that case actually told the parties, OK, to make this go smoothly, everybody don't talk over each other. When you're in court, don't talk over each other. She said that to, to the legal teams. And and then I think the judge made the point that that was actually beneficial for everybody. It wasn't just beneficial for, for the deaf juror. It was an improvement on the way the trial was conducted. And we've certainly heard from people with disabilities over this reference that changes that assist people with disabilities often have the benefit of assisting all court users and the justice system generally. And there has been research done overseas that has showed that 
a more diverse and representative jury, the better the decision making that is made. People think more critically, they take time, they listen to each other and the process runs more smoothly. So there's some clear benefits of including more people on juries and having more diverse juries. In the same way that we would want um, all forms of diversity on a jury, uh, gender, uh, race, etc., we also want ability. Absolutely. And, you know, the sky hasn't fallen in from allowing women on juries. You know, it was very slow in Victoria. Women got the right to vote in 1908 but didn't get to sit on a jury in an equal uh, position with men until 1977. And, you know... The juries have benefited from having women on them. So, yes, I think I think the judge in that case said we'll look back and find it silly one day, as we find with women, that, that people with disabilities weren't included on juries. Mm. Uh, to, to, I'd like to talk about two other countries uh, very quickly. In the UK, there, there was, I think, 2022 legislation which uh, allows uh, British Sign Language interpreters into the jury room. Uh, now that system's up and running, has, has that, there been jurors who, who have uh, been in uh, on juries? Yes, those new laws came into operation in 2022, the middle of last year, and there's already been two people who've served with British Sign Language interpreters on juries in in England, in the uh, county courts in England. Those two people have actually been appointed four persons of the jury. So that's that's the jury charged with the responsibility to communicate with the judge and to deliver the verdict at the end of the trial. And those jurors report that the process worked really smoothly. They thoroughly enjoyed their opportunity to exercise their civic responsibility and they hope that their example provides a good example for others um, to also put their hand up for jury duty and serve with um, British Sign Language interpreters. Closer to home, New Zealand, they've allowed deaf and blind jurors, or deaf and blind jurors have been accommodated for many years now. Yeah, they have. Okay, so of course inclusiveness is extremely important, but so is the right to a fair trial. What are the concerns of defence lawyers, especially about the ability of uh, somebody who's vision or hearing impaired uh, to, to follow what's going on in court? I mean, presumably, you know, court's a very dynamic place. You need to be able to, to follow very quickly what's happening in different places in a courtroom. Yeah, I think the concern in relation to the fair trial is that you know, in the context of jury duty, a juror must be able to comprehend the evidence, to follow along with what's happening in court, to deliberate effectively with their fellow jurors. And we certainly think in the majority of cases that's that's not going to be an issue. But there may be some situations in which a person who's deaf or blind may not be able to serve even with reasonable adjustments. So an example might be if you had a case that turned upon identifying um, a voice on a voice recording or identifying a person from uh, photographs or from CCTV image. Now, in that situation, a person who's deaf or blind might not be able to serve on that jury trial, even with reasonable adjustments. Now, that won't arise in all cases. It will only be where the material, where the evidence is, you know, material to the outcome of the trial. There may be some cases where there's other evidence that goes to identity. So it won't be in all cases, but we think that it is an important consideration and it should be something that the trial judge makes a determination about before that jury is able to serve on that particular trial. What about assessing the demeanour of any of the witnesses in a trial, um, assessing their voice, assessing their physical demeanour? Is that an important thing? Yeah, look, some people have raised concern about blind people, for example, not being able to see demeanour, so work out whether a witness is credible from the evidence that they're giving. We do touch on that in our report. Demeanour evidence is becoming less important in court decisions. Even the court in their submission to this review said that demeanour evidence shouldn't be a barrier in this situation. 
We know that it's working overseas, so we know that it can be done. And I think people who are deaf and blind have a whole range of sensors that they use on a daily basis to work out the credibility of someone. They have a whole a range of human interactions on a daily basis and they can work out whether someone that they're interacting with is credible. So I think the um, the issue of demeanour evidence is, is not a barrier that we need to concern ourselves with in relation to jury duty. Lawyer Emma Cashin, uh, team leader on the Victorian Law Reform Commission report. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Pleasure. Thank you, Damien. That's all we have time for today. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and to technical producer Brendan O'Neill. And don't forget, you can find The Law Report anytime, anywhere on the wonderful ABC Listen app. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.